This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, scenes like this are unfortunately becoming more common. Reports of attacks against carriers are up and mail theft is on the rise. The president of the Postal Police Officers Association explains how preventing these crimes is harder than ever. Then, artificial intelligence programs can now create fake audio, video, and text. These deep fakes are becoming more prevalent. We talk about how security and intelligence leaders can mitigate the dangers. And government officials are sounding the alarm about the national security risks of TikTok, with several bans already in effect in the U.S. But one reporter says these measures aren't doing enough. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. It's an alarming trend that's happening across the country. Mail carriers are being robbed and people are having their mail stolen. The Postal Inspection Service is the investigative branch of the USPS that looks into these crimes. Frank Albergo is president of the Postal Police Officers Association. Frank, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So there are postal inspectors and postal police officers. What's the difference and what does each one do? Well, postal inspectors are criminal investigators. Um, think of them as detectives in a municipal police force. And postal police officers are uniformed cops. Um, we have more of a preventative function, um, at least we once did. Um, in the summer of 2020, the inspection service reinterpreted um, the law to restrict postal police officers to postal real property so we're protecting buildings we are no longer protecting mail and we are no longer protecting postal workers so frank tell us a little bit more about postal police officers how are they trained um do they have some of the same privileges as police officers to make arrests you, you mentioned they can only work on postal property now so postal police officers have the exact same um defensive tactics officer survival training as postal inspectors. We, um, at one point, we patrolled streets. We patrolled letter carrier routes. We patrolled um, areas where blue collection boxes were most vulnerable. Um, and then the Postal Service decided that that wasn't a good use of postal police officers. Um, they did this when um, a mail theft epidemic was starting to emerge. And since uh, they benched the Postal Police Force, a absolute explosion in mail theft and attacks on carriers ensued. Um, it doesn't make much sense. And then they have refused to put Postal Police officers back on the street. I mean, it's it was an obvious mistake. It was an all-time blunder. And there's sticking to it it's it's really it's really hard to believe during a congressional hearing in september you told lawmakers that the number of postal police officers has significantly shrunk over the last two decades what do those numbers look like now right now there are 348 active postal police officers 
and there are about 70 uh, supervisors, so sergeants, captains. Um, at one point, we were at 2,700 officers. Um, that was years ago. Um, about a decade ago, we were about at 1,000. And now, basically, they're dismantling the post of police force. Now, they won't admit that, but our attrition rate far exceeds our hiring rate. So every year, the number of postal police officers are dwindling. It's it's you, it's happening during a mail theft epidemic, which is r remarkable. You know, I want to ask you about what you mentioned before, which was that uh, decision to no longer allow postal police um, to operate off of postal property. I wonder what what were they doing before that, and and what were they able to do? Well, postal police officers patrolled areas where uh, postal-related street crime was most prevalent. Um, we were deterring postal-related street crime. We were making arrests. We were, um, you know, doing what a, what cops do. You but know, I guess the crime. I guess the argument, Frank, is why isn't the local police doing that? Well, local police, quite frankly, don't have the resources to. Um, devote entirely to mail theft. I mean, the Postal Service has a law enforcement agency. It's called the Inspection Service. Um, postal inspectors have other things to worry about besides mail theft. Postal police officers, on the other hand, can actually devote 100% of their resources to mail theft prevention and the protection of postal employees. But we're confined to postal real property. It's it doesn't make sense. I mean, what what police force doesn't use all its resources during a crime wave? I mean, this is essentially what's happening with the Postal Service. I so, mean, the Postal Service is destroying its brand. I mean, every day a carrier is robbed, mail is being stolen, bank accounts are being drained, uh, identities are being uh, stolen, and the Postal Service basically refuses to respond with its, with its postal police force. So, so what are you hearing from other postal workers, from carriers? Well, you know, we've been, you know, we're trying to work together with the other unions to put PPOs, postal police officers, back on the streets. Um, you know, they're, they're frustrated. They, they don't understand, you know, they're at risk. You know, postal workers deserve to feel safe at work. And they're at risk right now, and they don't understand why the Postal Service is not utilizing their postal police force. It's Well, there's a, there's a new Congress now uh, this year. Frank, does that change anything for you? Are you expecting anything different? Well, I'm hoping that um, Congress introduces a mail theft prevention bill, which includes um, the restoration of postal police authority, possibly appropriations for postal police hiring, um, stiffer penalties for mail theft and attacking a letter carrier, um, also possibly appropriations for um, technology. Right now, the Postal Service still uses this antiquated um, arrow key system. It's just a key. It's easy, it, it can be easily stolen. It um, can be easily counterfeited. Um, it gives access to all the blue collection boxes, all Apartment panels, cluster boxes, relay boxes. All right, Frank, um, so we'll, we'll have to leave it at that, but we'll watch what happens. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.
Up next, how deep fake technology makes international conflict more complicated and how U.S. officials can respond. We'll be right back. That video appears to show Zelensky calling for Ukrainians to surrender, but it was generated by artificial intelligence. It's now possible to pretty much make anyone look like they're saying whatever you want. Chris Meserol is a fellow and director of research at the Brookings Institution. Chris, welcome to the program. Welcome, thank you for having me. So explain real quick what a deep fake is and who can make one. Yeah, so a deep fake is kind of a digitally generated uh, image or video or even text um, uh, that looks and sounds uh, exactly like the real thing. So and that um, increasingly pretty much anyone can create these whether it's a smartphone app or if you're a little bit more sophisticated, you can, you can kind of use a server to do it on your own. Um, but basically, we now have the ability or anyone, more or less anyone with a bit of technical know-how, can now create a, an image or video or audio of anyone in the world that they have like any kind of prior digital video or audio of saying anything they want them to say, which just creates a, a vast new kind of uh, landscape uh, and, and media environment that we now need to navigate, particularly in, in times of conflict. Well, we saw that Zelensky video that was a fake. What are some other examples of how deep fakes um, have been used in conflict or can be used? Um, so there's a, a wide array uh, of examples in which they can be used. One is obviously to create a, um, a deep fake of a, a, you know, a national leader uh, saying something in a time of crisis where you're trying to get that person to kind of uh, discourage their own supporters, things like that. Um, a few other examples that we're also worried about, um, one is that it, it really makes it easy for states to automate propaganda at scale. So a couple of years ago, China actually created a deep fake news anchor. Um, uh, and I, you can imagine during a conflict, having an, an auto-generated auto kind of news anchor just pumping out kind of misinformation about a conflict in real time around the world in foreign languages um, could create some uh, real challenges. Uh, another kind of more targeted example um, would be um, a lot of uh, ways that we verify uh, who we are and information for kind of uh, highly sensitive uh, applications or services involves audio, right? So if I need to do something with my bank, for example, I might call in and they would ask me to kind of who I was, et cetera. With deepfake audio, you could create, um, even if all you had was just this video that we're kind of filming um, now, you could take that, get my voice and my voice signature, and create like a digital replica of my voice and have it say whatever you want. And so you could call my bank or do something like that. Well, don't give people uh, ideas. I know, I know, Chris. this is terrible. I know, <laughs> but the problem is this has already happened. Like there are cases where this has actually already happened, um, and in conflict, you can imagine a scenario where there's a commander out in the field. They get a call from their superior, sounds exactly like their superior, um, and uh, you know, it turns out it wasn't. It was a, it was a deep fake that was generated by their opponent. So, are there ways to find out if they're real? Can you? Is there a ways to authenticate them? Well, so one of the challenges of deep fakes is that if there was a way that we could, you know, anytime we come up with an algorithm to detect what's a deep fake versus what's a real uh, audio or video file, that technology can then get brought into the next generation of deep fakes because it actually makes it it improves the ability to detect them. Actually, improves the ability to generate them. Uh, so in the short term, you might be able to do that, um, but in the long term, that's not really going to be a solution to this problem. It's a very powerful technology. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you, you write, I think it's, you say this, quote, democratic governments will almost certainly consider generating and distributing deep fake content mm -hmm. because it's so useful, in, especially exactly. in conflicts. 
So what are the ethical concerns there that, you know, that the United States might be generating this? Right. That, to us, this is uh, probably the, the most significant issue for democratic governments in particular. On the one hand, I don't think we want democratic governments to really kind of fight fire with fire, which is to say, I don't think we want democratic governments to create their own kind of uh, deep fake, you know, news anchor and, and propaganda kind of apparatus. Um, on the other hand, there are probably going to be times where you know, security officials, intelligence officials within democratic governments might want to use deep fakes um, uh, to kind of uh, influence the behavior of their opponent in certain ways. And, and an example would be, um, you know, in a kind of counterterrorism operation or a, uh, in a, you know, an operation in Ukraine to counter Russia, for example, um, security officials probably aren't going to be too concerned about the integrity of the, the uh, democratic kind of discourse uh, and that if they feel like they can get an advantage by doing it they almost certainly will and I, I think that that begs the question of well how can they do that safely because I don't think we want a scenario where anyone in kind of in the US government or any democratic government uh, is just kind of creating these deep fake videos of you know high-profile kind of characters on the, on the other side um, you know at will that that could kind of that's a recipe for chaos and I don't think we want that so so the suggestion that that mm -hmm. there's a an international code of conduct mm -hmm. for deep fakes does that even would that even work I mean <laughs> why would you follow that uh, so I think that's a it's a it's a great question uh, I would say that um, a code of conduct is kind of a voluntary commitment that different governments will make um, to establish best practices around um, how they're going to use these technologies. So it's not to say that these technologies would never be used. It's not to say that this code of conduct wouldn't be violated, but it establishes norms uh, so that uh, uh, there's, there's a bit of a cost, a reputational cost, or in some cases there could even be a legal cost to violating these, these norms and standards around how something like deepfakes could be used. Um, and it's kind of a, a, a pact among allies not to kind of uh, get too carried away with how this technology might be used and implemented. And not to add to the fears, but there's also the fear that authentic content gets mm -hmm. dismissed as deep fakes as this proliferates. And democracies depend on people believing real information. Exactly. So this is kind of the, you know, this is the, the exact reason why we don't want democratic governments to go overboard with this technology. Um, because once deep fakes are out there, if they're being really widely used, then let's say you have a, a you know, let's say it's a presidential campaign and there's uh, a video of a, one of the campaigners uh, or nominees, for example, saying something a little bit outrageous that might kind of get them in trouble. Um, we actually, if that's a real video, we want people to trust that it's a real video, right? And, you know, we're heading towards a future where they could say, in theory, oh, that wasn't actually real. That was a deep fake. Yep. I didn't actually do that. That's um, fake. And yep. I, I think that makes it very difficult for us to have a robust kind of. Uh, uh, you know, discourse with, with you know that has the integrity that we want it to have that can produce the kind of democratic you know elections and uh, uh, processes that we want to have. All right. Well, Chris, thank you very much for being on the program. Well, thank you very much for having me. Up next, there have been several measures to ban the app TikTok. It's called Digital Fentanyl by one lawmaker, but are these efforts effective? Stay with us. TikTok is now barred from federal devices due to concerns about Chinese spying and manipulation. There's even a bill in Congress to ban the app outright in the U.S. Shira Oviday is writing about it for The Washington Post. Shira, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Is there evidence that the Chinese are spying or manipulating Americans through TikTok? 
It's a good question, and it's a really difficult one to answer, right? I think a lot of the concern about TikTok is about the theoretical risk because TikTok is owned by a Chinese internet company called ByteDance. And because in China, there's not much separation between government and private enterprise, there is concern that TikTok might be manipulated by uh, Chinese authorities to either spy on Americans or manipulate what we see. And you know, there's been some evidence here and there, uh, notably TikTok acknowledged recently that a number of executives uh, looked at the activity of journalists who were reporting on TikTok and its activities. And that's the kind of thing that plays into the worst fears about TikTok and the ownership by this Chinese internet company. You write that these bans, quote, hardly ban anything. Why do you say that? Well, I mean, I think we have to look at what is happening in many states and also in the federal government as largely symbolic. So you have these states uh, more and more each day that are uh, saying that government employees can't use TikTok on devices that uh, governments own or on Wi-Fi networks that are run by government. So where we've seen this maybe most notably is in public universities. The University of Texas uh, just said that they would prohibit TikTok from traveling people using TikTok when connected to university Wi-Fi networks. But of course, students have other ways of using TikTok. They can just disable uh, Wi-Fi and use TikTok TikTok over their d data plans on their phones, right? So that's why I'm saying that these protests or these measures to, to air quotes ban TikTok are kind of on the margins. They're largely symbolic as a way of registering disapproval of TikTok. What about an outright ban in the US? Do you think that would be effective? I mean, it, it would be, or it, sh it would be effective. It is a very difficult thing to do, right? Uh, Donald Trump, uh, talked about and and briefly implemented a TikTok ban when he was president. There is, as you said, another bill or two pending in Congress. Look, banning TikTok from being used in the United States, it risks angering many people. TikTok is used by 100 million plus Americans. And there are First Amendment concerns about banning one or a particular app, right? We have to really consider whether in in a bid to protect Americans from the Chinese government, we're doing what we risk doing what China's government does, which is to ban people from using individual apps. You write that a, a secret U.S. committee has been negotiating with TikTok since 2019. Tell us more about that. Yeah, there's this committee. Uh, I won't bore you with details, but CFIUS is the the acronym by which it's known. And it essentially oversees any investment by foreign entities in the United States. It, it looks at a kind of very wide range of uh, corporate investments. And one thing that it's been doing literally for years is kind of imagining what could uh, America do to solve some of these concerns about TikTok and Chinese ownership while also permitting the app to operate in the United States. And, you know, it's proposed some pretty draconian terms, including, you know, that the United States government would have the ability to appoint board members who would have independent oversight of TikTok. Uh, and that there would be kind of a minder, a corporate minder in the United States 
that would sort of oversee TikTok's algorithm and its computer code. These are pretty unprecedented measures. And from my colleagues reporting, this has been controversial within CFIUS itself. And I think it's really gonna be hard to strike a balance, right, between an outright ban, which is difficult, and uh, allowing TikTok to operate as it is right now, which is uh, contentious. So what about a, a national privacy law? What would that do? How would that work? Yeah, I mean, I think when you talk about the concerns about TikTok, one, I think, reasonable pushback is, look, if you're concerned about apps surveilling everything that people do everywhere they go in the world, um, lots of American companies do that too, right? Um, there's obviously a difference between a company that's based in China and one based in you know, California like Facebook and, or Meta, but it's also true that there are very few national restrictions on what companies can do with our data, uh, how much information they can collect from our phones. There are really so few restrictions, federal restrictions, on those types of activities. And so the people who are critical of these efforts to ban TikTok, one thing they say is, you know, one thing that would patch some of these concerns is if there were a federal privacy law that protected us from all apps that harvest our data, American and Chinese alike. And very quickly, Shira, I mean, do we know how TikTok's algorithm works? Uh, can there be more transparency into that and in, in, into how they're collecting information about the users? There can be more transparency, and I think this is something that, that people have talked about with, again, all companies, whether it's uh, American companies like Twitter and Facebook or TikTok. But it's true that we don't know a lot about how the TikTok algorithm works, and unlike other apps, it's essentially all algorithms, right? Everything that we see on the TikTok app is not because of who we follow, but it's on what TikTok's computers believe we want. All right, Shira, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. 
Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.